The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue Baloo, been a while since we've done one of this. This is like one of the longest hiatus It Would it be hiatus I? Hiatus Plural wow. hiatuses uh, that hiatus we have I, had? I don't know, but it sounds like some sort of disease. <laughs> yeah, the hiatus Yes. <laughs> How you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I'm yeah. doing okay. Um, as you know, I'm here in San Francisco visiting my sister. Um, she has Alzheimer's. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into any kind of depressing thing. Okay. But one of my big observations, um, trying to make light of a not so light situation, being with someone who has Alzheimer's is the longest game of charades ever. Because hmm. that's all you do. It's like, what? Sounds like uh, every time she tries to explain something to me, I'm like, was it someone you went to school with? Was it someone we went to camp with? Uh, uh, is it someone you worked with? Yeah. Um, but, you know, she she still has a semblance of a sense of humor. We went out to lunch and uh, couldn't decide what I wanted to eat. And she looked at me and said, I can't help you with that. <laughs> so, you know she's she's trying she's trying oh god i feel for you i know this has been yeah. going on for a while now yeah yeah how long yeah. are you up there for uh i'll be here till uh pretty much the the whole month of april mm. wow that's yeah. uh yeah i feel for you i feel for you that's uh that's a terrible thing terrible thing yeah yeah so uh you know you you, you do what you got to do you know uh I love my sister. And when I told her, actually, we FaceTimed and I told her I was coming up for a month. I wish that I would have recorded it because she was like, what? You know, like <laughs> she could not believe it. You know, she has daughters that live up here. So and, and she has a, a big support of uh, a lot of friends. She's lived in the neighborhood for like 40 years. So, you know, she's like the mayor, you know, of yeah. uh, of uh, the inner sunset. You know, everybody knows her. And uh and even, if, you know, she says hello to everybody. You know, she's very, very friendly. Um, she loves kids. She loves babies. You yeah. know, it's it's funny. We walk down the street and I coo over dogs and she coos over babies. You know, <laughs> she'll point and say, oh, look at the baby. And I'm like, oh, look at that dog. Oh, um, yeah. Well, so, you are a good sister. A good sister for sure. <laughs> Got to do it. So uh, Matthew Berry is going to join us, uh, my friend for a long time, the preeminent voice in uh, fantasy sports. In the meantime, you wanted to get to some. What, uh, what else do you want to get to? Well, I had a uh, a friend of mine uh, just recently started uh, dating somebody new. And, you know, it's always kind of a weird thing when you're used to somebody being with somebody else. And then all of a sudden they're with a new person. Yes. And uh, they stayed uh, with Tom and I over the weekend and slept in the travel trailer and um <laughs> it's just well th there's two things so you know they're in their 60s and you know 
you just know that they're having like, you know, a wild time together, you know? Oh, really? A wild time, huh? <laughs> so, so. When the, the first, travel trailer is rocking. Well, you know, if it was a cartoon, it would be rocking and there would be like steam coming out of the roof, you know? <laughs> so uh, she came back in uh, the, the first morning and she's wearing a bathrobe. Her hair's all tussled. And she she looked like a prize fighter who went through like 15 rounds of sex. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of funny. But, you know, the, the thing is, is that... Um, I kind of got into like, a, I wouldn't say an argument with him, but he kind of pissed me off. Okay. And he just said something that was, I wouldn't say it was condescending, but it was a little know-it-all-y. And, yeah. um, and at one point he said, uh, well, I have no problem with that about something that I was doing. We were talking about TM and okay. he, he's an anti-TMer. He did it for a long time and then he got out. And- really? Who's anti-TM? It's just meditation with a, a a saying in your head, right? Well, he he kind of got into this, like you know, so uh, you're trying to reach this higher power and levitate. And I looked at him and I said, "No, I'm not trying to <laughs> levitate. I I just I'm just meditating. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking for any kind of you know astral you know kind of magic or anything like that." So um, he said. Oh, I'm okay with that. And I, I looked at him and I said, Oh, you're okay with that? Oh, okay. I'm glad you're okay with that. I don't, you know, and I was like, I don't really care if you're okay with it. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so it was just, you know, like I said, it was just, just very condescending and, and a little weird. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, I, she's one of my closest friends. So like, what if I really don't like this guy and, you know, they continue to be with one another and I don't want, I don't want to be with them because I don't want to be with him. Oh, so that the friendship would be damaged by the fact that you don't maybe not like right. the guy. But then in a beautiful twist, um, he lives in San Francisco. So he drove me back up here. Uh, he drove me up here on Monday. And on our drive, we really bonded and really? had a really, really nice time together. And it changed a lot of my opinion about him. And I started to realize that there are certain things about him that, um, you know, if maybe if I were in a relationship with him, <laughs> it would drive me crazy. Right. But I see how it works for her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he was really, really kind. And, you know, he dropped me off at my sister's and, you know, helped me bring my bag up. And he gave me his phone number. And he said, if there's anything you need while you're up here, please don't hesitate to call. Um, you know, I go back to L.A. a lot. So, I you know, I could drive you home. And uh, so it, it, it was a happy ending to something that I thought could be a disaster. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. Well, good. Now, you didn't. So So you still do your TM. How long have you done the TM? I started in uh, 2015, and I kind of do it halfway only because you're supposed to do it twice a day. Yeah. Which I did in the very beginning, and now I, I just do it in the morning. Right, and, and TM is where they give you a mantra, and yes. it's like, uh, I don't know, uh, strong strong or one of those things that they say, right? And then you say it, and it, you focus on it, and then it becomes a form of meditation. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's something that you're not saying out loud. It's in your head. And you're not allowed to tell anybody. You're not allowed to tell anybody. Right, right. It's like secrets in the military. I didn't didn't stumble upon it. It's not shring shrong, is it? (laughs) 
My mantra? <laughs> yeah, your mantra isn't shrink shrunk. Uh, I'm not going to tell you whether it is or not. <laughs> You're not going to tell me one way. or the, Even though I made that up, you still will not say, I, no, I will not that's say. not. Well, you know, how, how funny would it be if that actually was it? <laughs> shrink shrunk, shrink shrunk. <laughs> You know, it it would be par for the course because this this all right. So this is crazy. Um, the idea that just because we're talking about it, mm-hmm. somehow you know what it is for some reason because that seems to be the way the world is today. It's like you think of something, or you know, it used to be if you just went online and um, people were following your social media, you know, following your emails, or yeah, um, all of a sudden whatever. Whatever uh, site you went to, you'd get an email from that company. Right, right. Right? Like I'm getting all this stuff about Alzheimer's and dementia all of a sudden because I go on a lot of those sites. Sure, sure. So so the other day, my producing partner and I, we're working on this uh, scam show uh, that we're trying to, you know, we're trying you mean to. You're trying to scam a studio or something into giving <laughs> exactly, you a show? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what it takes. <laughs> so th- the next morning... I open up Chrome on my phone and there's a uh, a warning and uh-huh. it has the Apple logo and it says Apple Systems next to it and it's telling me that there's a virus. Oh. And and in order to do the fix, click here. Oh no. No, I know. And I'm thinking, oh, I can't believe it. I was just we're working on a scam show and then the next day someone's trying to scam me. Now, don't you think it's likely that everybody is getting scammed every day on every page they ever go to, and maybe this is confirmation bias? Oh, look, you know, I mean, it's is it ironic that it, it happened the day after it happened? Would it have happened anyway? I'll never know, because right. it just happened, you know, the next day. And you day. think it was just thinking about it that made it pop up in your Google? No, I wasn't thinking about it. I was talking. We had a meeting. I had a Zoom meeting. So... So it, you know, I don't know, is somebody listening in? Is somebody, does somebody, I mean, isn't that how it happens? Yeah, no, it, I, I think so. But it all, I mean, in a different world, it sounds paranoid. No, I'm not. No, no, no. It's definitely not paranoid because I'm not a par- I'm not a paranoid person. It, and, and I don't, you know, all this like conspiracy theories and all that kind of crap. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on a short leash with that, but. My brother was telling me, I, I, what was it, Edward Snowden? Yeah. Was, was talked about how people can get to you through your phone. Um, they have access to be able to listen to what. To turn your phone on and turn yes. the, turn yeah. the camera on, turn, turn the, the audio camera, exactly. on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, look at all the people, like, you know, my camera, I don't have tape in front of my camera, obviously, because we're doing a Zoom, but a lot of people put tape. On where the camera is on the oh, computer. Yeah. Oh yeah, a lot of people do. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm just joking. I know you're teasing. It's not but, paranoia. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it is. Um, I'm not paranoia. It's just I think everybody's listening to me all the time. <laughs> so I wanted to I wanted to do one thing here before we get rolling, which is to talk about your experience in my fantasy baseball league. Since we're going to have Matthew Barry on, yes. Now my impression is you had a Terrible time. Is that fair? No, 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 that's not fair. I didn't have a terrible time. I actually, for, for the most part, it was fun, but, and, and maybe this is, I, I kind of wanted to talk to Matthew about this because um, I'd like to talk to Matthew about it, but 
the, the times that I got crazy mm-hmm. was when um, people were trying to um, make trades with me. Yes. And I don't know whether they thought that I didn't know a lot about baseball because you brought me in and, and, and no one knew my backstory. I was just right. Sue Kalinsky, a friend of Steve. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I do know a lot about baseball. Yeah. So I felt like maybe sometimes I was, you know, being taken advantage of a little uh, bit. Let me just, let me update that all the time. They were trying to take advantage. Everybody's always trying to take advantage of everybody in a trade situation. And I would argue that the best trades are the ones that work out for both sides. But in that league, it is a lot of sharks and there is a lot of blood in the water. Someone was trying to get Chris Yelich from me. Yeah, right, right. I'm like, what are you, for real? I mean, you know, this is crazy. No, no, but then I'll give you like three players. And I said, you can give me half your team. I'm not giving you Chris Yelich. And it doesn't add up to one Christian Yelich. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't. So anyway, um, and and another thing that, that was frustrating for me was rooting against my own team. Yeah, at times you do have to root against your favorite team, yeah. And, you know, I'm a hapless Mets fan. Yes. So I need all the help I can get. Sure. You know, and, you know. They don't need your bad juju rooting against them when Christian Yelich comes to the plate. Exactly. 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 Well, uh, yeah, we can talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff with, uh, with Matthew Berry. Our guest today has been a friend for more than 20 years. After building his career at ESPN, Matthew is also known as the talented Mr. Roto made a big move to NBC last year. He is on Peacock. He's on his podcast. He's on NBC Sports Edge. He's on his Fantasy Life app. He is everywhere, and now he has made it all the way to Sunday Night Football. Matthew Barry joins us. Matthew, thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, of course. For you, anything. So, so my goal in this interview is not to make it all about fantasy football. I'm going to try to do something totally different. Good. I'm sick of talking about fantasy football. It's all I talk about. I hear you. I hear you. So you write your love hate column every week. And I think that's now on NBC Sports Edge, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. And you always start with something personal. And my favorite one is back in the middle of the whole Richie incognito, Jonathan Martin, bullying thing that went down right and you revealed that you were uh bullied as a kid yes so so i'm curious how were you bullied why do you think it happened all all that kind of stuff yeah no hey come on my podcast and relive your most painful memory from childhood (laughs) (laughs) great Listen, I know you're busy, so let's just let's get right to making you cry. Um, Come for the bullying, and yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> stay for the drinks. Exactly, fantastic. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. Great. Uh, and 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 please be specific. Exactly how you were bullied, please. <laughs> if you can, if you if, can actually if, do an interpretive dance right. of your bullying. Yeah, if you could, if you could just point out all the thing we were well aware of the things that are wrong with you now as an adult but if you could take us back to when you were a child and all the things that you were insecure about as a kid and what your bullies would point out about you that would be great so we could understand exactly your yeah. pain points i was gonna go teenager. for the full roy firestone here yeah fantastic yeah. But we want to know what it is so we can bully you now we we need yeah. the tools sure 
Sure. Well, I think, I mean, I, let me ask you this. I, I'll get into it. Give me a second here. But um, my question is, is like this podcast is the audience, is the audience sports? Is this more pop culture, Steve? Are these, are these Steve Mason fans that, I mean, like, I don't know how many people get the Richie Incognito, Jonathan Martin reference. That's totally fair. A lot of these people are uh, are fans of mine or fans of the show. It's more pop culture. So it's not necessarily uh, football junkie kind of people. So you're right. They may not know that story. And some so of them are fans of mine, too. Yeah, some are Sue's fans, of course. <laughs> I would think so, Sue. I, in fact, I would I would bet the majority are. The majority are. I mean, I've, I've known Steve close to 20 years, and uh, I, can, I can tell you that uh, the secret of success is finding a co-host that everyone likes and that will tolerate him, is what I've found. So I have, there's no question, Sue, that he is riding on your coattails once again. <laughs> I absolutely am. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyway, Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin were both offensive linemen in the NFL. And it came out that Jonathan Martin, who was like a, I want to say a second round draft pick, but highly thought of basically walked away from a team in the middle of a season. And the question was like, why would a, an offensive lineman, and for people that aren't football fans, offensive linemen are the guys that block. They're usually the largest people on the field. And so they are, you know, they're, they're 6'4", 350 pounds. Like they're, they're just massive human beings. And so uh, Jonathan Martin just left the team and people were like, why are you leaving the team? That's so weird. And what came out was that he had been bullied by Richie Incognito, who is also an offensive lineman. And it was a, it was a, um, it, there was a bit of a, Controversy is the wrong word, but it sparked a lot of conversation and debate around what does what defines bullying. Richie Incognito's point of it was like, man, this was just good natured razzing between guys, you know. And Jonathan Martin was like, no, like we're it wasn't good natured razzing between guys because we're not friends, and you were kind of a dick to me, and um and constantly, and and you were more of the senior member of the team, and I was a, a rookie or a second year player. I forget exactly where he was in his career, but he was a fairly young player. And so he, you know, Jonathan, Richie Incognito had the power in that relationship, if you will, because he'd been in the locker room for multiple years and he was uh, an all pro player. And, and so, and how could somebody the size of Jonathan Martin, who again was over six foot, over 300 pounds, I think off the top of my head, you know, how could somebody of that size be bullied? And so it just sort of that. And so I wrote a column about my experience that I understood and that all of the the um, the thing that so there was a lot of talk about Jonathan Martin and, and Richie Incognito in that um, and that relationship and there were text exchanges between Incognito and Martin that got a, a released and so um, you know I said what there was so there was tons and tons of, of discussion and and articles written about uh, about this incident uh, or this moment in time and what I said in my column that Steve referenced was that I think the one thing that people missed in that particular conversation was they didn't talk about the fear and that, that I thought that they didn't talk about the fear. And by that, I mean, from Jonathan Martin's point of view is, is there's a fear. And so that when you've been bullied and I was bullied in high school is that the fear is, is that you suddenly become very distrustful. You become very distrustful of people. And it's not just about one incident. It's not just about like, oh, 
they were making fun of you or, oh, they were mean or they stuffed you in a locker or whatever it is, whatever the stereotypical bullying is. And in the case of Jonathan Martin, it's been quite some time since I wrote that article and that article came out and the news of that came out. But I think it was like, it was, a, you know, it was like, it was some text. It was some, it was some jokes. It was, I think they made him pay for some dinners and stuff like that. But the, the details are important. What I would say, if you become suddenly very distrustful of people and like for me in high school, like, and I, I can, I, I'll get back to your question, Stephen. I'll answer it in terms of how specifically I was bullied. But what it does is when there are bullying incidents, you, it suddenly you become distrustful of when somebody's nice to you. You're like, well, are they being nice to me or are they just setting me up? Because they're going to make fun of me and they're going to pull the rug out. And it's one of those that's it's like, well, are you coming to the party? And I'm like, what do you mean party? Like, we're, aren't, yeah, come to the party. And you're like, well, well, are they inviting me? They're not really inviting me, right? Something bad's going to happen. I'm going to go to this party and then like it's, you know, and they're all going to be in costume and I'm not, or they're going to tell me it's a costume party and I show up and no one else there. And uh, like, it's just, I'm being set up to be made fun of again, right? to be tortured again. And you, you know, oh, that girl couldn't possibly like me, right? She, she's just smiling at me because she pities me or because, or they're, oh no, she likes you. Wait, does she really like me? Or again, am I just being set up to be made fun of? And then I, I go forward and then they all laugh at me. Ha ha, there's no way that girl could like you, Barry. And so I, I just think that that particular incident, they, they, they didn't. And so that's what I use as the, the start of that article is they just, they missed the fear. They missed the fear and it just permeates every aspect of your life. In my particular case, I was a, um, I was a sensitive Jewish kid growing up in South Central Texas. So I grew up in a, a town called College Station, Texas, which is where Texas, no one's ever heard of College Station, but that's where Texas A&M University is. My father, to this day, is a professor there. And so I moved there when I was 12 years old, and we'd moved around a lot as a kid, and um, just my, my father's very successful and kept getting better and better jobs. And so we moved around a lot as a kid, and I just, it stunted my, my social growth. Um, so I was socially awkward. I think I still am, actually. Uh, I don't know that I ever got out of that, but... Um, uh, I was definitely, as a kid, I was socially awkward, had big frizzy hair. Um, life is unfair in that way, that I had this awful big frizzy, uh, you know, literally um, uh, Napoleon Dynamite kind of uh, afro. Mm -hmm. yeah. I literally had, a, as a kid in high school, I had this Napoleon Dynamite kind of afro. And then, of course, now I've lost it all. Like, I, 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 could, I never found a happy medium with my hair. Um, and so... So I was just, and I, you know, I went to high school, I graduated in 1988. So I had, for the first couple of years, like I had big, thick glasses. I, I'm almost, I'm nearly, I'm like close to legally blind. I wear contacts, obviously, but I'm like, I'm like uh, 10, 100, I'm like 2100, I think is my actual eyesight. Like I'm, I'm close to legally blind without my hmm, without glasses. So I had big, thick glasses and frizzy hair and socially awkward. I'm the sensitive Jewish kid in Texas where there was literally one other Jewish kid in my entire class. So I just felt like an outsider every, every possible way. And I definitely didn't make things easier on myself in terms of, in terms of this, but in terms of, you know, I was, my fun was made fun of, my hair was made fun of quite a bit uh, in terms of, let's see, I was, you know, there was, it doesn't even make any sense. You know what I mean? Like things that torture you, things that now you sit back and go like, why did that bother me? Like, I don't know. But like, they, they called me skillet head, which I don't even mm. know what that means. But like, mm. they're just, I guess my hair looked like a, a skillet or something like that. And so that just became, 
just, you know, it was a cruel nickname, right? That they yeah. just all called me skillet head or skillet or skill. And, you know, it was, there's all sorts of like different variations of that, um, that once teachers caught on, they, you know, they did various var- variations of it so they could quote, get away with it. They, um, you know, there were, uh, they would often, you know, and I know the group of kids to this day, I know the group of kids that would do it, but it was like a, uh, you know, there was a group of kids that they would, and sometimes they would like, I would come out, um, of the parking lot and, uh, you know, my, my car, uh, they, they would take uh, shoe polish and they'd written all over my car, like skillet head and Jew and, you know, all these, all these things. And, you know, and like, so, and so, you know, the, or they would, um, you know, they would TP my house. Sometimes the car thing is the thing I remember the most. There's a, there's one particular incident. I remember I was on the tennis team, you know, and, and tennis again is, is like, so you're on a team and, but it's not really a team sport. You know, I was a really good tennis player as a kid. So that's a singular sport. And, you know, so you don't, again, another instance where I didn't develop social skills because, you know, tennis, you're sort of all by yourself out there on the court alone and you're not having to work with anyone else. Right. Um, uh, and I, because I was a good tennis player, like I played tennis from the time I was 10 till the time I was 18. I was ranked in the state of Texas. I, I, I won my district titles a freshman. I, I was the number one seed on my high school team. We went to state. We went to the state finals. We finished third in the state of Texas, which is Texas is a really good tennis school yeah, because you yeah. can play year round. It's a very good tennis state. Um, and, uh, because you can play year round. And so like I was a really accomplished tennis player as a kid, but again, it's a so like, again, I never had like, because I was playing competitive tennis again, I never had, you know, didn't play like soccer, you know, whatever, just whatever team sports where you're just, you know, interacting with kids. And, um, uh, you know, and the, the worst part about the, uh, the, the worst part about the, the, the shoe polish stuff was it was like, it was like a, it was like three things, right? It was, it'd come out of tennis practice. And so there's my car, you know, covered in shoe polish. Right. Yeah. And, so now it's like one, it's just like, right. So there's insults all over my car. So that, that part sucked. But then the second part sucked is that now I've got to clean it. And in addition to like, okay, here's an hour that I don't have or whatever, here's 45 minutes that I don't have to clean it. And my parents are wondering where I went, you know? And so now I'm cleaning it and I've got to clean, like, I can't drive it because it's covered. You know what I mean? Like, in, yeah, in the, yeah. The, the, I can't drive it to a, a car wash. So I'm, I'm trying to wash it there and like, and other kids in the high school are coming out and seeing it. Right. And so it's like, it's one thing. It's number one. It's like, okay, I know, I know I'm hated. I know I'm unpopular. I know I'm being made fun of, but now, now I've got to see the looks of pity of like girls walking by and seeing me scrubbing it, you know, and like, that's like another dagger, right. You know, yeah. where you just, you know, is, is you see people like either staring or they, quickly, you know, they quickly, uh, lower their head and walk by. And it's just like, and so, you know, you're an object of pity, um, and you feel pathetic. And so then, and then, and then you go home and you finally get home and, you know, my mom's like, well, where were you? I thought practice ended at four and it's five fifteen, you know, or whatever. And, and so you don't want to be like, well, you know, turns out there's this group of kids at school that hate me and they, yeah. you know, shoot polish my car again. And, you know, and so, 
So now I'm like, I'm making up some lie or whatever. And, you know, you just feel, oh, well, so-and-so wanted to go grab a, you know, we went to Burger King for an hour or whatever. And, you know, I grabbed a quick bite. Uh, okay. You know, well, I've made dinner for you and I can't believe you, ate, you know, like, and just like, it was just awful. Right. Yeah, and yeah. like they would, they would, uh, you know, a cu- couple of times, same thing. They like the toilet papered my house and same thing. They would write, you know, and chew polish and whatever, um, you know, stuff on the sidewalk or on, on the windows of my house at night. Um, I remember one particular incident we went after tennis practice the, um, and there were a couple of guys on the tennis team that weren't particularly good. And maybe they resented me because I was like the, you know, I was as a freshman, I was the number one seed. Right. And these were, these were guys that were like JV or like, you know, didn't really play in the matches, but like were on the tennis team or something like that. And again, like, I think I'm, you know, looking back on it, I don't think I helped myself. Right. I probably was probably was arrogant tennis player and I probably was, um, I was probably way too influenced by McEnroe. And so I would get mad on the court and like, you know, I, anyway, I'm, you know, it, it doesn't excuse any of their behavior, which was way out of line. Yeah. But, uh, but I certainly didn't help, you know, as a kid, you don't, I didn't help myself. You know what yeah, I mean? I definitely, yeah. I probably, I definitely made myself more of a target, um, looking back on it. Yeah. So I have and, much darker questions, by the way. Okay, great. Well, yeah. so I'll just tell this one story and then we can get, okay. we can deep, we can get even deeper, but, um, cool. Uh, but anyway, I just remember one particular incident where they were going to Seven Eleven. There was a Seven Eleven, probably about a mile and a half from the high school. So after practice, one of the older kids on the team was like, "Hey, Barry, you want to? Um, hey, we're all going to Seven Eleven to get you know drinks. You want to go? You want to ride? This is before I had my own car." And uh, I said, "Yeah, sure." Like I was all excited to be included. You know, and like, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And so we all, there was like five of us. We all piled into this kid's car, and we we drive to Seven Eleven, and so we all get out, and we're shopping and everything like that. And so I go, and I'm not paying attention. And I go and I grab my drink, and you know, I pay for my drink, and I walk out, and they're gone. Hmm. You know, and they they clearly like all sort of walked in, and then immediately like left, and and you know, decided to walk back to the high school. Um you know, it was like a mile and a half or whatever. And I'm just, you know, I'm in my tennis gear and I'm all sweaty and I'm holding my big gulp and I just, you know, feel like an asshole. Right. You know, and it's just like, it's a long, long walk home. And so it's stuff like that where it's where I'm saying, so then, so like, then the next time I get invited, Hey, you want to, Hey, we're all going to go grab drinks or we're all going to go to whatever the dairy queen or whatever and hang out. You're like, and it might be a completely legitimate and genuine invitation but now I'm like, oh, am I going to get left behind? Is this some sort of prank that they're pulling me? Like you become really distrustful, and like, and then you're, um, no, no, thanks. I got like you, you're like, you know what I mean? And so you, you start turning those things down, and then, and it just it kind of keeps building on each other, and you you become more and more isolated and more and more lonely because people's like, well, why ask that guy? He's never going to go. And you know what I mean? Like, and it just, and you never know, you just don't know who's real and who's not. And it's just, you know, it's awful. And the only thing I think is that, you know, thank goodness that all happened uh, when I was you know, in a, in a time before the internet and before social media, because oh, yeah. I see it now with my kids, you know, I see stuff that in one ways, you know, we're as a society, we're much more 
aware of bullying. We're a much more sensitive society. We're much more we're much more forgiving of other people. Differences of you know uh, uh, of you know uh, of people that might be uh, have you know different religion, different sexual orientation, different you know uh, different beliefs. So we you know we're a much more accepting society overall. But uh, we're also we're also there's also a million more ways to torture people. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean. And I and I right. with, with you know I have five kids, and so I've seen it with some of my own kids. You know with kids of friends of mine that like where like what's wrong so-and-so posted a tiktok about me yeah. you know and yeah. you know it's just it's just awful and so um so at least i didn't have to deal with that right um but uh but yeah it was um uh yeah i mean I definitely you know i have some good my high school memories but i also have some painful ones too true i you got to read this piece i think by the way matthew it's one of the best things that you uh ever have written i love that you talked about it and you made yourself vulnerable and it allowed me to actually talk. I got bullied in seventh, sixth and seventh grade. And, and I don't talk about it a lot, but the fact that you were willing to do that, I think touched a lot of people. I appreciate that. And, and, it, you know, I, I wanted to write it for a long time and I never had the guts candidly to write it. And I was just sort of like, what would I, what are people going to think of me? And, you know, and I think I mentioned this in the column, it says, Oh, really? The, you Really, the, the fantasy football nerd got bullied. Shocking, you know, news at 11, right? And so, um, stop the presses. And and so, I was worried what people would think of me, but then eventually I did, and I got so many kind emails and notes and people that expressed their own their own demons and, and experiences they went through and that it helped. And so, and I've, I've done some stuff over the years uh, with anti-bullying organizations, and it's something actually I wish... You know, it's, it's interesting, Steve, that you brought this up. You know, the last year has been a whirlwind for me uh, career-wise. But, you know, when you're at ESPN, and Steve, you don't have to comment on this because I know you're an ESPN employee, but yeah. uh, I'll just say this. When I was at ESPN, I'll speak of my own experience and my own experience only. When I was at ESPN and I brought up the idea of working with a, in a public-facing way, an anti-bullying organization, what I was told was that, you know, that talent at ESPN, if you really want to get behind a charity, they really want you to push Jimmy V. Yes. And the Jimmy V and the Jimmy V Foundation is a great organization. They do terrific work. I've I've done a bunch of stuff with Jimmy V. They are amazing at what they do. It is a wonderful charity. Uh that that and it's I it's one of, if not the best thing that ESPN does is their work with the Jimmy V Foundation for Cancer Research. Uh so nothing bad to say about Jimmy V or that work or that relationship, but it did make it tough for me to say like, Hey, I'd love to be one of the faces of a anti-bullying organization and give my time and, you know, uh, and support to an organization. And it's something now that I'm no longer an ESPN employee, I should look into further. I have yeah. not done that over the past year and I'm going to. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. So, so was, what was it, was there like a defining moment, um, when you got to a certain age where, um, where you were like, okay, you know, what, what, at what age were you not bullied? Because I, I think about uh, where you were at that time and you look at what's happening now with a lot of kids with teen suicide and kids that are getting bullied and all that. Was there ever a moment in your life where you were like, I just don't want to be here anymore? I mean, I, did you ever, I mean, it's a personal question, but did you ever, did you ever contemplate like, yeah, suicide? I don't know that I ever, I think, I think you, um, 
I think you always have uh, moments where I was going to say dream moments or fantasies and like, and it's, it's so dark to say, but like you have that moment where like, I'm going to kill myself and I'll show them. They'll all feel bad. Mm -hmm. You know, you have like those, those, you know, kind of very, you know, self pitying wallowing moments where you're just like, I don't know that I ever seriously contemplated it. I, you know, I definitely had those moments where I was really, you know, sad and miserable and depressed and I, you know, fleeting moments, if you will. But I think it was more about the fantasy of, I'll show them, you know, and they, they'll feel so bad and like, you know, that kind of stuff more about the, again, like it's so dark to say, but I don't know that I ever seriously contemplated it. We also had a, um, we had a suicide in our school. So uh -huh. we had a, a young man that when I was a, when I was a junior, we had a young man that, that committed suicide and someone that I knew, uh, didn't know well. Um, but you know, high in the hallway kind of thing. His father was the, um, was the driving instructor hmm. in town. Like the, like everyone went to this kid's father to, you know, I, he, he's who taught me how to drive. Like I got my, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, a, a driving school and this guy ran it. And, and, uh, so, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was, so it was, you know, he's kind of well-known, because every kid in high school went to this one guy to get driving students. So his kid, I don't want to say the name, but like, you know, um, and so anyway, it was awful. And I remember going to that funeral. And yeah. so, um, like the entire school went and, yeah. um, you know, so as, uh, uh <clears throat> so I think when that happened, that's sort of any fleeting thoughts that I may have had sort of sobered me up, if you will. And I don't want to say that I ever really, I was probably too chicken to ever really ever go through with anything uh, on a serious level in terms of when it sort of ended. I think part of the reason that I, you know, as I talked about, like I made it hard on myself. Part of the reason is, is that I tried so hard to be accepted by this group. I tried so hard to be a part of it. And I took the jokes and I, you know, for a while, like I would, I called myself skillet head to try to ingratiate myself with them mm. or like pretended that it didn't bother me, you know, and try to make fun of myself as well. Like just, I tried hard to ingratiate myself uh, with that group and they just, they didn't want me. Yeah. They just did not want me to, they did not like me and they did not want me around. And so, so they just, you know, I was just an easy punching bag and they just sort of, you know, I just kept taking it and coming back. Cause I just, I was new there and I didn't have any friends and like, you know, and it was, it was like, you know, in this weird abusive relationship, you yeah. know, if you will, like, um, that I couldn't escape. And eventually I, I found myself in, um, uh, in addition to being like a good athlete, like I joined a drama class of mm -hmm. all things and I really enjoyed that. And so I started doing like, you know, some high school plays and we would, there were drama competitions where you would go and you perform scenes and everything like that. And I enjoyed being on stage and performing clearly. It's, you know, it's a, it's a version of what I do now for a living. And, and so I found a, found a group, if you will. Uh, I, I found a home in high school. I finally found myself. And instead of being with the, the quote, the popular kids with the athletes with the jocks with the cheerleaders, which is where I was, sort of trying to be with and and they just didn't like me they didn't want me um and weirdly it wasn't even like quote unquote the really popular kids they were all fine they thought i was funny they liked me um 
uh, or they certainly weren't cruel to me. Uh, they didn't mind me. Um, but I certainly was no threat to any of their girlfriends. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so they liked having me around or didn't mind me. There was like a subgroup of the pot anyway. Um, but, but I found myself with, you know, so I, I found myself, I found a group of like, you know, drama kids that were in the drama class and speech class. And, uh, so I sort of found myself, I want to say probably 17. Yeah. And I started hanging out with them and I stopped trying to ingratiate myself with them. And then it sort of just, you know, it, uh, uh, that sort of went away. Um, uh, so what extent. was your greatest high school performance? As a, as, as an um, actor. As an actor, I feel like we did. Um, I feel like we did Music Man. Um, I don't. We mostly. I don't know that I really did any of the plays. I feel like we we must have done the plays. I, I feel like I was in Music Man uh, for some reason that immediately came to my mind. But I just know that we did a bunch of different. Um, there were competitions. You would go to these competitions, like you would do a dramatic scene, you would do a yes. comedy scene, you could do a speech and that kind of stuff. And I did. And there was like a monologue competition or something like that. And I did a monologue from uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Nice. Of all things. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and just about the, um, the attempt at flying and like just how easy it is. You have to just, you know, to learn how to fly, you have to, you just have to throw yourself at the ground and miss. And I just, uh, I, I, I just, I got really good at that one speech and I just nailed it. And so I won a bunch of awards for that. So I think I just, you know, I was able to memorize, I was able to memorize a speech and I was able to, I was able to nail a joke basically yeah, yeah. for lack of a better way to phrase it as a kid, which is a fairly rare skill. Like I just, I learned timing and I learned somehow I, I learned how to learn how to land a joke and uh, how to do a setup and, and, you know, nail a punchline. And so uh, I did pretty well with that. So I won a lot of, comedy monologues i think nice you know matthew i don't i don't know if you're aware of this with steve but he has a very very um he's got a big theater background and uh he he really is famous for one show that he was in yes i, I don't know if you're aware of it <laughs> they are still talking about my henry higgins at mommy oh, yes. high school sure um yeah i mean i was it was a word i'm not going to do the number normally i do the number <laughs> so here's how stupid this show is Okay. So have, He's uh, okay. Okay. You go ahead. I was going to So we talk. have Kelly O'Hara on the show, who's like won two Tony Awards. And I find myself performing the big number from My Fair Lady for her, uh, because in the end, I guess it is really all about me. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, did you ask Kelly O'Hara about her high school trauma, or is it just yeah. me? We let off. We let off with our high school trauma. Yeah, great. That's, that's the, the way we roll here. That's fantastic. Um, so, what I, do you think, I wanna... Sue? Can I ask a question, to Sue? What do you yeah. think is more torturous for a guest? You just asked me as as somebody who's co-hosted the show with Steve for a long time. What's more torturous, Steve asking me to relive like the most painful moments of my life, <laughs> or Kelly O'Hara having to watch Steve perform <laughs> fucking Henry Higgins from My Fair Lady? <laughs> Um, hands down the ladder. I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. Like, that's just like, that's just like every bad, you know, like, uh, you know, you go like, oh, I want to be a star too. Oh, really? Yeah. Let me just, let me tell you my soft shoe. And you're just, and you're just like, oh, well, I want to talk to you from, from someone yeah. who, who wrote for TV and you wrote for TV. Indeed. And 
uh, one of the um, all-time... So can I ask, I'm going to interrupt you yeah. for one second, I'm yeah. sorry. But I will say, <laughs> you know, it, going back, just to bring this in, I think there's a lead into, your, into where you're going, Sue. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the reasons why I was able to uh, do as well in the, in the comedy monologue stuff that I did and why I ended up becoming a writer and a, a comedy writer for sitcoms and movies, and so we'll get into this, is because, you know, again, I, if I could go back in time, I would have, un- I'm, I'm not happy any of it happened, but necessity being the mother invention, like I had to quote unquote become funny because that was my defense mechanism. As kids were making fun of me, as I, I, I had low self-esteem, and so, you know, I didn't think girls would like me. I didn't think I was attractive. I didn't think I had anything to offer. So the one thing that I felt like I could potentially offer is, hey, I'll be funny. Hey, you know, I, I, can I make, if I can make you laugh, even if they're laughing at me, if, the, if I can make you laugh, then maybe I'm, I'm part of the group or whatever, or I can disarm the situation and somehow. So it became a defense mechanism for me, and it became you know, kind of a, a tool in my arsenal, a, a big one for me. And so uh, it's, as I sit here and kind of reflect back on, you know, the, the first half of my life, it's not surprising that I've gone in the path that I have because of the experiences I had in high school. So, sure. Anyway, and and, and yeah. you also, you know, you gravitated towards, you know, a theater department, you know, I mean, who's more accepting than a theater department? And, you know, my, my background is stand-up comedy and, you know, you know, <laughs> A lot of mis. And I'm not saying you were a misfit, but in in some sense you were because of how you were treated. But the comedy clubs, club owners, they grabbed a lot of the misfits, you know. And you you talk to guys like Mark Marin, you know, who I interviewed recently for something else, and he was saying, you know, he was nobody nobody liked him, nobody put him on, you know. There was one particular club owner that gave him a shot. Because he was kind of off the beaten path and he was a little bit, he was odd. And, um, you know, and, and I just marvel because, you know, you look at guys like that and you look at guys like you and, and look what you have done with your life. No, Sue, there's no question that, listen, the, the drama club was absolutely the island of misfit toys and like, but, you know, like, but, you know, they, they, took me in and I enjoyed them and we all, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm still friends with some of those people to this day. And, um, you know, so it was, uh, you know, you know, thank God. And yes. And I think that again, as long as we're getting deep, like the reason that I tried to do that, the reason I got into radio, I was, I literally spent my senior year of high school. Stephen knows this. My senior year of high school, uh, I worked as a DJ. I was Matthew Rock and Roll Berry at uh, KTAM, College Station, Brian College Station's Classic Rock. <laughs> and I. Uh, How did that sound? It, it was a video. I was, well, honestly, what's funny is I, I was basically, I was raised on Top 40 Radio. So yeah, at that time, I graduated college in, uh, sorry, high school in 1988. At that time, most of the FM DJs that were doing Classic Rock were a lot of like, and here's the latest cut. Oh yeah, Steely Dan. <laughs> it was all deep voice, really slow, basically stoned. All just like you know, uh, you know. And here's a little Zeppelin. You know, it was all that. <laughs> and so I was, but I was raised on top forty. So I was like doing like you know, I would play like um, I would play Layla, and then I would like I would talk over the intro of Layla. I would sure do the, the you know the you know I would I would do a talk up. You know I would do the you know to the post like you know. This is KTAM, Classic Rock, 1240 AM, in the Brazos Valley. Here we go. Eric Clapton, no longer with Derek and the Dominoes, but this is Layla. 
give it to me, Eric, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, and so, you know, I just, whatever, I'm 18, uh, 17, 18 years old, and I'm basically doing a top 40 radio show in terms of all like the, you know, like the, the Kid Kellys of the world, you know, again, this is sort of inside baseball and radio, but like, you know, the, kind of the, the, the upbeat top 40 radio DJ, but I'm playing classic rock, you right. know? And so it, for whatever reason, it sort of worked. Um, and, uh, one of the proudest moments of, uh, like, I'll say this to, uh, to this day that like, so I was, I was at, working at this radio station. And I worked there from the time I was 14 years old. That was my high school job. And I, you know, I, I started like just answering phones and like just hanging around remotes that they would do. And eventually like, who's this weird kid? And then they were like, oh, he's harmless. And like, I thought these local DJs were like superstars. So they were excited, you know, that somebody was a fan. And so, you know, then they invite me into like answer the phones and I'm thrilled. And then eventually I got a job as like a gopher at the station. And then I was playing taped programming. And then eventually I like got like some overnight shifts and kept working my way up. And so my senior year of high school, this, the Monday through Friday, seven to midnight shift opened up and I went to the program director and I said, I want this job. It's like, you're in high school. And I go, I know, but I've been, I, I'm next up. Like I've been, I've been doing that. I, you know, at this point I was doing like weekend day. I was doing like Saturday day and Sunday afternoon shifts. I said, you know, you know, I'm solid enough on air and I can go to school and then I can do it at night. My parents have said, okay, let me do it. And so it was me and one other guy at the station that were kind of the most obvious choices to get this full-time job. And the program director, um, Roger W. Garrett, bless him, radio legend, uh, especially in Texas, Roger W. 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 Garrett. Uh, he did morning for a long time in uh, out of Houston. Uh, anyway, Roger said, screw it, sure. And definitely there were a lot of people at the station that were annoyed that this 14, at the time, now 17-year-old kid, the 17-year-old kid was getting a full-time job, you know, the 7 at midnight shift. And at the end of the year, I was number one in men 25 to 54. Like it was That's a race. what market. I'm talking about. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I mean, like, which was our demo. That was the yeah. demo we were going for. We were a class rock station. So uh, when the book came out and I was number one in my time part, and now many of the other day parts were not number one. You know what I mean? Like it was, Brian Call Station probably had 150 to 200,000 people. So it wasn't like a massive market, but it was like, it was a rated market. It was an arbitrary rated market. So it wasn't like nothing. And, um, so like to this day, that's like one of my, one of my things that I was yeah. very, very proud of. And to bring it full circle, Sue, the reason I told that story is that I think that, um, whether it's being a DJ, whether it's being a comedy writer, whether it's now doing what I do now, which is being in front of a microphone, being in front of a camera, being in the public eye, that it's a way to, it's a way to get love, right? It's a way to get applause and to get acknowledgement and recognition that I obviously missed out on as yeah. just a normal high school kid. Like if, if you don't, um, you know, listen, fine. If you don't like me as a person, you're going to like me because I'm famous, you know, whatever. Right. You know, and yeah. just, um, I literally, the podcast I did before this, it's funny. I was, um, it was with a, a kid that I went to high school with and like, he's, he's got a podcast and he asked me to do the podcast. So I, um, and so I did the, I, I did his podcast. And we were talking about it and, and we were talking about our high school reunion. And him and I were friendly in high school, but not like super close, but we were friends. Um, and we re reconnected at our most recent reunion. And I just talked about the fact that I, I, uh, I said, listen, if there's ever a time to go back to your high school reunion, it's after you've been on ESPN for 10 years on national TV, <laughs> right? You know, like I went like, they were like, we were, su I, we were surprised you came and we thought we were going to blow it off. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
like whatever the the the, the uh, I went there like you had to send in a photo of yourself like yeah. my reunion was like you had to f- send in a photo of your job or whatever or you you know something about your life now and I sent in the photo of me from the Emmys holding my Emmys you know fuck them yeah I mean you know <laughs> thousand percent a thousand percent it was just like whatever the the, the reunion started at seven I was there at six fifty nine like I was just like are you kidding me like I wanted every single person that's right. That's right. Um, hey, you know, whatever, you know, Christine, remember when you turned me down for prom? Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> you know, and like literally, um, uh, you know, just had a, um, uh, you know, if, if there are, there's time to go back to your high school reunions after you've been on national TV for, uh, uh, you know, for, for a while. So that was, I really enjoyed my high school reunion. Yeah, so I wanted to so. ask you, so when Entire, you went back. Entirely ego-based and petty. Entirely yes. petty and oh, ego-based. Totally. Oh, but totally. You, but you earned it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so did you, I mean, were there the bully, the bulliers, <laughs> were, were they there? Not a one of them showed up. Um, and I don't know what I would have done. Like there were one or two that were a little, that were like on the outskirts of the bullying, um, that were there and they could not have been more ass kissy to me. You know, oh, uh, my, my kid's a big fan. I watch you all the time. Wow. It's great. You know, blah, 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 blah. The, the, the main perpetrators did not show up. And I've gone, I'm now like, you know, uh, I graduated high school in 1988. So obviously it's, we're past our 30, you, there's been a, a handful of reunions since there, like five year, 10 year, et cetera. Um, and, and I've gone to every single one of them and it's cause it's, it is entirely ego-based and petty, but, um, uh, <laughs> but I love it. And, uh, none of them have ever come to any of them, uh, to any of them. Uh, one of them's, one of them can't go because he's in jail, mm. uh, which I also <laughs> take tremendous pleasure in. Uh, but the other ones just, you know, just have never, um, have have never come to, uh, come to any of them. I will tell you a quick, funny story though, uh, about this, which is, uh, when I was in high school, uh, the most popular girl in our high school was Joan Bush. Her name's Mm -hmm. Joan Bush. And when, uh, uh, I'm sure she got bullied. Oh, she, 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 you know, cheerleader, um, uh, she was a cheerleader, most popular girl, like, you know, um, and, uh, you know, when she was a freshman, when we were all freshmen, she was dating the, you know, the star of the football team, you know, the good looking star of the football team who was a senior when we were, uh, I remember walking and she was always nice to me. Um, but I remember we would, uh, we weren't friends or anything like that, but always, you know, high in the hallway kind of thing. And I remember one time we were walking out of school at the same time we were walking to the parking lot and I'm sitting there praying, please, please don't let this be a, a, you know, shoe polish day. I'm walking, Mm -hmm. you know, I desperately do not want Joan Bush to see the shoe polish. And, uh, anyway, so we, we were walking to the parking lot and all of a sudden, again, this is 1988, all of a sudden like this totally sick Camaro pulls up, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, uh, pulls up and, uh, Jones like, Oh, that's my boyfriend. Like, you know, he's a sophomore Texas A&M or whatever. Like, okay. Oh, right. So she's, you know, now she's dating a, you know, some, um, you know, you know, some college kid, right. Which was a big deal there, uh, in high school. And so anyway, so I go to my high school reunion, uh, the first time I'm back and this is the one where I sent in the Emmy picture and everything like that. And people are ooing and aahing and I'm, a lot of people are, you know, being very kind and I'm, you know, feeling pretty good because I'm, I'm the most famous person in this room. I'm the most famous person that graduated my high school. And uh, Joan then walks in and she goes, um, she's, and I'm with a group of people and Joan walks up and we're saying hi and, oh, you know, hugging, hello, how are you, good to see you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, you know, Matthew, this is, this is my husband, John. 
And uh, John shakes, John uh, holds out his hand and goes, hey, nice to meet you. John Rich of Big and Rich of the country group Big and Rich. <laughs> and I'm like sitting there thinking in my head, like, yeah, I know who you are, you know, like, by the way. And at this point, this is this is probably 1998. I think it's our 10 year reunion. Like they were massive, you know, they were just a, like, and so like I had like about 45 minutes to an hour of where I was the most famous guy in the room. Yeah. And then, yeah. no, I <laughs> know now here's, you know, John Rich of big and rich, you know, uh, save a horse, ride a cowboy, you know, whatever. Yep. Massive, yep. Ma in, in Texas, by the way, I mean, again, like, you know, we're, well, we all listen to country music. And so, um, you know, and I was like, of course, of course. Had it for Bush a minute there, though. Had it for course, a minute. Yeah, for a minute there. Of course, Joan Bush is married to John Rich, to a yeah. big music star. Of course she is. Anyway, so, so I, I read all super of annoying, And I'll just, I'll end the story with this. Yeah. What's super annoying about Joan Bush is she could not be nicer. She's oh. like the sweetest person. And you're like, you want to hate her and you can't because she's like, you know, anyway. Uh, she's a lovely person. And I am, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we're not close but i am facebook friends with her and oh, if nice. facebook if facebook and if facebook is any indication joan and uh, john are still together and doing very well so very nice anyway, anyway. so uh there you go malcolm gladwell who i read yes, all this stuff um he in one of his books uh he talks about steve jobs and bill gates both being born in 1955 so there's an element of them being at the right age at the right time to become the creators of personal computing and the revolution and all that stuff. Do you feel a little bit the same with fantasy sports that you, you were at exactly the right moment to go big because fantasy sports was going big at that moment? Sure. I mean, like, uh, there's definitely a little uh, right place, right time for me. I, you know, I also listen, I saw an opportunity. I wasn't the only one pursuing it. I pursued it uh, in, a, in a smart fashion and I pursued it uh, you know, and I, I think I'm really good at what I do. Uh, so the best, you know, you I, def I, I definitely think, you know, I think, you know, hard work, talent, and a little bit of luck, uh, all got me there, but there's no question, right place, right time. I got very lucky in, again, as we sort of try to bring this all full circle, right? So again, nerdy kid, not a lot of friends, uh, playing tennis as a solitary sport. When I was 14 years old, because I was this good tennis player, like I was, you know, like, I ended up getting burned out on it, but I could have played Division One tennis. I was ranked in the state of Texas. I was recruited to play uh, college tennis at the next level, at a high level. Um, so I was very good back in the day. And as a result of me being good at tennis, I took private lessons from a, a local pro that was very good. And one day I'm walking up, and uh, there had and this is uh, this is the spring of 1984 because in the in the uh, winter of 1983, they published a book called Rotisserie League Baseball, the best game for baseball fans since baseball. And it was all about what is now known as fantasy baseball. And the people yeah. who invented the game had written this book. It was really funny and well-written and just made it sound like so much fun. And so as I walk up, my tennis coach is talking to a, a buddy of his, and they're talking in this kind of weird language. And I said, are you, are you guys talking about Rotisserie League Baseball? And my coach says, you've heard of it? Yeah, you've heard of it? And I'm like, yeah, I just read the book. You guys have heard of it? And they're like, yeah, we're talking about who we know to join a league, to form a league. And I'm like, I'll play. And again, like, it's, they're adults, right? But uh, especially back in the day, uh, like, you know, it was hard to find people that had read this book. It was, you know, the internet didn't exist at this point. Um, this is 1984. Um, and so, you know, stats would be have to kept by hand and the whole thing. And so a very nerdy pursuit. But uh, they needed an, a tenth guy, 
And I said I was willing. So it was like a league full of like, you know, 30 and 40 year old men and a 14 year old kid, hmm. um, which again, like the only reason I pro- they were desperate because they just needed somebody who understood the rules and would play. But I was desperate because I looked for, you know, anyone anywhere that would have me at that point. Right. And so, um, you know, that's not typical for a 14 year old kid to be like, yeah, I'll hang out with a bunch of 30 year old and 40 year old men. But I did, you know, like, and they, they would have like kind of these weekly lunches that I would go to. And, um, it was, uh, you know, and as a result, I fell in love with fantasy sports. And so I got to, to, to your point, Steve, like I got in, you know, at the very early levels, thanks to my career at ESPN, I ended up getting one of the big honors of my, uh, my career is I got to actually do a fantasy baseball draft with Daniel Okrant. Wow. You know, the, 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 the founding father, if you will. Yep. Um, the guy who wrote, who created, who created fantasy baseball, who wrote that book. Um, and so, uh, and I, yeah, cause I long story, but I ended up meeting him through ESPN cause we were doing a, a documentary and then he invited me to, to one of his drafts. And so I, I sat at a, at an auction table with, for a fantasy baseball draft with Daniel Okrant. And we talked and a little bit. And at that time, the people who wrote the book, they had like, they were trying to make some money off of it. So they had a service where you could, you could fax, you could fax in your, your team and they would fax you standings once a week. Like they had somebody that was calculate the standings for whatever, 500 bucks a year or whatever it was. And yeah, so we signed up for that service. And so I remember talking about it and I said, yeah, I remember, I don't know if you, does the fat dog league in college station, Texas. And he's just like, yeah, I totally remember the fat dog. I remember Don Smith who's our commissioner. He's like, I remember talking to Don on the phone once a week or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he just said, you, you guys were one of the first 50 leagues in America. So because I was bullied, because I was this nerdy kid, I was in one of the first 50 fantasy baseball leagues in the entire country. And so I was thinking about fantasy sports well before a lot of other people, certainly anyone my age. And so as fantasy sports continued to grow in popularity, I was able to, you know, see, hey, maybe there's an opportunity for me to make a career of this. I never expected that it would lead me to being on football night in America in front of yeah. 15 million people every week. But I thought, hey, maybe there's a chance I could potentially make some money at this. So I am a, I'm a much bigger baseball fan. I'm a sports fan all around, but baseball is really my favorite sport. So I wanted to ask you a question. So with all the current rule changes that are going on in baseball, most of which I hate, okay. are there changes that you would any changes that you would like to see in in football and i want to give you one of mine because what frustrates me more than anything is missed calls which happen a lot and and i think they should add they should have a ref dedicated to like an aerial view i agree Someone who can see everything because the way the cameras are on the field and even, you know, there are some aerial cameras, they don't get the whole scope of the game. What do you think about that? I completely agree. You know, we could we could do a whole different podcast about the the challenges of officiating the NFL and the inconsistencies. I don't understand. They they have the ability to do what's called replay assist that somebody in New York sees something and like, no, you missed it. And they buzz down and they're like, just change it. Don't waste a challenge. Don't waste time just we're going to we're going to recorrect it 
But when and where that replay assist comes in is seems to be very arbitrary. I don't understand. And it feels like it should be either all the time or none of the time. They literally, they're having the NFL owners meeting right now in, uh, in Arizona, or maybe it just ended, but it was this past week. And, you know, they voted on rule changes. And one of the rule changes that was suggested and got voted down, which is insane to me, is to make roughing the passer one of the reviewable penalties, a penalty that can be, because there is just, you know, people breathe on Patrick Mahomes and it's 15 yards. Yeah. But Baker Mayfield gets, you know, sandwiched between three guys and like he ain't getting that call or whatever. Pick a, you know, uh, Jacoby Brissett, like Jacoby Brissett ain't getting that call. And it's just like, it's just really some of the, some of the ticky tack fouls. And it's just, so I agree with you, Sue, that, uh, officiating and, and trying to bring more clarity to how the game is officiated from game to game, from crew to crew, from, from period to period, like, you know, you see it all the time, and we saw it in the Super Bowl. We saw it in the Super Bowl the last two years. I, I mean, I, I don't know that, like, if I was a Bengals fan, I'd feel pretty bitter about the, you know, that, that was a pretty ticky-tack uh, pass interference call that allowed the Rams to score the last touchdown two years ago. And, you know, Darius, um, James Bradbury was like, yeah, I held, and he did you know, in terms of what uh, kept the, the Chiefs drive alive there instead of making them kick a field goal in this last one, the Chiefs-Eagles game. But, like, while James Redberry admitted it, and yes, it was a foul, it was also a ticky-tack one, and one that right. they don't normally call. So it's just sort of like, if you're going to call that play, you need to have done it all game long. Right. Because and players all- adjust to how the game is being officiated. And if right. they're calling it loose, and they're letting them play, then the players are going to be more aggressive. If they're calling it tight, and so it's weird to say, like, hey, go ahead and play how, you know, you know, we're, we're going to call it loose for three and a half quarters. But when we get in tight, now all of a sudden it's going to be ticky tack stuff. And you're just like, what are you right. doing? Right. Especially, especially when a receiver was so far away from the ball, but there's no way in the world that he was going to catch it when some, when a player's hand, when a defender's hand it was on his back, <laughs> yeah. you know? It wasn't yeah. egregious. It wasn't an egregious um, foul. Although I, yeah. I will say this, as a Rams fan, two years ago, I thought that was egregious pass interference. Just egregious. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I want to sure get to a, a, a last few things here. Um, okay. So your Wikipedia page says that you're friends with three celebrities. Okay. Casey, I don't. My Wikipedia page. I've not looked at it. I don't. I think it's fairly. Uh, although I think Steve, I think you're on my Wikipedia page. At least I, I am, I as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, because I, 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 I got my Sue. I'm sure you know this, um, but Steve is who gave me my start. Steve is who, who my very first radio hit was with 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 Steve when he was at Fox Sports, and then he brought me over to ESPN as well. And um, so I, I owe a lot of my career to Steve. So. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and I believe you. I believe it mentions that. I, and I've mentioned that when I get asked about, you know, I always try to give some love to Steve. I, and made, John I made your and, book. Yes, made your book. I think page is it one seventy three or one seventy eight? Page one. I've got it framed. It's page one seventy three. <laughs> one seventy three. Page yeah. one seventy three. Yes. So it says you're friends with three celebrities: Jay Z, Zoe Deschanel, and Seth Meyers. And I'm like, how did Zoe Deschanel get in there? Are you re- are you tight with Zoe Deschanel? I am not. So, um, I am, I am not in contact with Zoe. I am in contact with Seth and Jay. Um, uh, so both I play in league or play in leagues or talk to them about fantasy football, but Zoe Deschanel that came from there. Uh, people magazine did an article on me or people.com. I should say did an article on me 
and they threw that in there. And at the time, Zoe Deschanel got invited to a fantasy baseball league. And so she reached out to me or her, um, I think her producing partner reached out to me and I had one call with Zoe and I think she may have come on our podcast to our fantasy baseball podcast, but like I had a call or two with her where she just, she was, she got invited to a fantasy baseball league and she didn't want to be, you know, she wanted to know what she was doing and she didn't know what she was doing kind of thing. She'd never played before. And so somehow we got in contact. And so I tried to help her out with like, I think I had one advice call with her and then we had her on a, on the podcast to talk about, you know, whatever it was. And I forget exactly how we got connected, but yeah, like, uh, you know, we exchanged an email or two and I think that was it. I think she like, she got into fantasy baseball and I was just like, if you've never played a fantasy sports before, just baseball's pretty intense. It you is know, intense. You, yeah. you don't want to do, you don't want to do, but like there was a reason why, whether it was a, a business reason or a friend or there was some specific reason why she was doing it. And she just wanted to make sure she didn't look stupid or she was doing it with her producing partner. I, I forget the backstory, but in essence, that's how. And so the story came out and, and I think we just wanted to, um, you know, I just, I'm always a big believer in, can we get, uh, you know, representation matters, right. In all aspects of life, including fantasy sports. And so it's a predominant fantasy sports is predominantly male and predominantly white. And so I am always encouraging of women to play, you know, people of color to play and, so I think the idea of Zoe, like when, when the People Magazine article asked me for names, my guess is I mentioned her, A, because I'd probably been in touch with her whenever that article came out, but also because I didn't want three guys. Like I was, right. I remember telling, I remember telling Zoe, she was like, oh, I don't want to take up any of your time. I'm like, you don't understand. Zoe, if you get into fantasy sports and you're talking about it, that's great for us. If we have, if we have a female celebrity like Zoe Deschanel talking about how much she loves her fantasy baseball team or she loves her league or she's talking about it. That's great for the growth of the game because too many people think it's just nerdy dudes. And like, I don't have a spreadsheet. I don't have, I'm not going to be able to calculate this. I don't have time. And we're like, no, no, it's actually fairly easy. And, and, um, you know, and it's fun. And so we, we've done really well in terms of, you know, a lot more women, a lot, you know, there's much more diversity in the game than there was before, but it's still not where it needs to be. And so, um, so that's my guess, but yeah, being honest, since we being completely honest, no, I am, uh, I still talk to Seth. I still talk to Jay. I have not talked to Zoe in many years and I would not, uh, you know, let me put it this way. If I was at a party and I walked up to, and if I was at a party and the three of them were there and I walked up to Seth, he would hug me. Hello. If I walked up to Jay, he would hug me. Hello. Um, if I walked up to Zoe, she'd be like, who are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're in the MCU, uh, yes. and, which is just amazing. I, we both grew up in superheroes. So that's just crazy. Amazing. Who is your favorite character in the MCU? Other than myself? Yeah, other than yourself, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. Uh, I mean, probably has to be Iron Man, big Tony Stark fan. Um, hard for me to separate the character from the person. Uh, you know, and this is super name-droppy, but the two days that I did on Avengers Endgame, Robert Downey Jr. could not have been more kind and gracious hmm. and... Um, uh, you know, he, um, you know, I, I don't think he'll mind me telling the story and I apologize to Robert if, if he does, but I, um, 
you know, as we talk about again, we talk about sort of the beginning of the show where just like about how I felt excluded as a kid. I feel like an out, sometimes I feel like an outsider, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now I get invited because I'm in a league. I'm friends with Joe Russo of the Russo brothers, who's the director of Avengers Endgame, Infinity War, Captain America, Civil War, Captain America, Winter Soldier. Awesome human being, good friend of mine. Him, he's a big fantasy player. Him and I became friends. Uh, we got introduced to a mutual friend. We, um, uh, we kind of fanboyed out on each other. And then we started texting and we started playing in a league together. We grabbed some dinners together. and We just, just became good friends. And so he's just an awesome human being. And then when he was doing uh, Endgame, he said, hey, do you want to be in the movie? Because I've got a role that I think you'd be good for, hmm. which was turns out to be, uh, you know, Robert Redford's uh, Alexander Pierce is the name of the character. Alexander Pierce is right hand man. Yep, right hand man. Um, and uh, and and as a shield agent. And so my scene is with Redford, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, uh, Tom yeah. Hiddleston is in the is in the scene as well. Loki, and um, uh, as is. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Rudd and Mark Ruffalo, the Hulk and Ant Man, are in that scene as well. But their stuff is CGI, and they weren't on set when I was. But my set, my my day, my two days on set were there. And so again, I'm like so nervous because I know how Hollywood works. You know, Sue, you know this as well. Like in terms of like these guys are big stars, and even though I'm coming in at the request of Joe Russo, if Robert Downey Jr. or Hemsworth, or Redford, or 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 Tom, any of them. But if Downey, if Downey pulls an assistant director aside and says, the fantasy football guy, can we not, we can't do better than that? Even if he just <laughs> said something just really, really, are we sure, is he the best guy for the role? You know, I mean, he just said something like, or he's not even that direct. If he's just like, the fantasy football guy, huh? If he just literally said that, I'm gone. You yeah, know what I mean? Right, like, I right, mean, mm -hmm. right, I'm gone. Like, you know, he's the franchise. And uh, we're sitting there rehearsing the scene. And so in the scene, uh, the, the point of the scene is that Tony Stark is taking the Tesseract out of Stark Tower and he gets intercepted by Alexander Pierce, who, spoiler alert, for if you haven't seen Winter Soldier yet, Alexander Pierce is secretly a bad guy. Yes. And so this is, this is a flashback uh, and or it's a time travel movie. And so we, the audience knows that he's a bad guy. And Tony at the, in the moment knows he's a bat, doesn't want to give up the Tesseract. And so there's supposed to be a struggle for, for the Tesseract, at which point it will ultimately get kicked around until Loki gets it and escapes. Yes. So, but the problem is, is that we get there and we're forced to have this struggle. And Robert is like, well, what do I do with the Tesseract? Like, I'm not going to just, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I don't want to give it to Alexander Pierce. I wouldn't just hand it over. It's the Tesseract. Right. And Alex and Robert Redford is like, well, my character, I'm Alexander Pierce. I'm the head of shield. I'm not going to grab for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Robert, we're trying a bunch of different takes of like how to generate this, this struggle over the case. And he's just like, well, maybe if I try to put it behind my back and it hits across my leg and maybe then that, then it falls. And we're trying all these different things and people are suggesting different ways to, in essence, get the case to fall to the ground in a natural way that then would get it kicked and, the whole sequence would have been. And so then I say, like, I'm like, and I'm super nervous. I'm just like sitting there like super quiet. Right. And then I just say, uh, I, I have an idea and everyone <laughs> like, and I'm like, Oh God. And it's like, it's Chris Hemsworth. It's, uh, Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Redford and Anthony Russo, who's directing this scene. They all just immediately look at me. Cause it's just like the five of us. And like, yep. and uh, I think uh, Chris Castaldi, who's the assistant director. And they're all looking at me. 
And I'm like, oh God, you know, and Robert Downey Jr. in the most genuine, sweetest way possible goes, do you have an idea? I'd love to hear it. Mm. What, what do you got? And I'm like, well, I said, I know I'm supposed to sort of be this, this stoic, you know, uh, agent, but it, instead of being like this stoic, quiet agent, what if I'm like an aggressive asshole instead? And just, I immediately, because I'm, you know, his right-hand man, maybe if I just grab for it, what if I just grab for it, like in a, in a super aggressive asshole way, and then you pull it back and there's a bit of a struggle and then, you know, it Downey's slides like, away and Loki gets, it slides away and Loki and Downey's like, that's awesome. Let's try that. And so we try that. And he's just like, oh, that's perfect. And so it's, it's, you know, it's the teeniest, teeniest moment. Yeah. But, but my point is, is that, um, and so what do we do a couple of rehearsals in this time for lunch? And so we're breaking for lunch and now I'm like looking around for like craft service or whatever. And all of a sudden somebody sidles up to me and says, uh, Matthew. And I'm like, yeah. And like, if you would like, you're welcome to join Mr. Downey for lunch. Wow. Oh. Wow. And so I went to lunch and, and, and by the way, and I, so I go to this lunch and it's, it Downey's there and Hemsworth is there and the Russo brothers are there and Hiddleston's there. Redford's there. Redford's producing partner, uh, Downey's producing partner. Um, I think Hemsworth's wife was there as well. And so it's like, like, you know, and, and, and uh, he did everything possible to make me feel inclusive and part of the process. He did two other things for me. Um, First off, he says to me, which I think is just fun. He goes, uh, he goes, he goes, listen, uh, you know, he's very downing, right? He just goes, Hey, you, uh, you ever done anything like this before? You know, you just imagine. <laughs> and, and I go, oh, well, I've, I've, I've played myself in a few sitcoms and some cameo stuff, but nothing like this, Robert. He goes, well, listen, don't, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but you look like a shield agent. You're doing well. You know, and I'm just like, oh. like, he's like, you look like a shield agent. And I'm like, Robert from you, massive compliment. Thank you very much. He goes, no, no, I'm fucking with you. And then he, he turns to the Russo brothers. He turns to the Russo brothers and he goes, you know, again, very, very, you know, uh, you know, Downey, like he just goes, he's, he's doing very well. We should give him more stuff. Wow. And, and the Russo brothers say, we agree. And so I wound up shooting six lines in the movie, none of which were scripted. Um, and four of them make the film. Like if you yep. go back and watch, the only one that's on camera is hand over the case start, which is my big one, whatever, when I grab it. But like if you, if you close caption it, like you'll see, like I have like four lines in the movie. I'm in the, I'm in the credits. Um, yep. and, and so. The story that I don't, so anyway, he could not have been a lovelier person, but at the sec, I think the second day I said to him, I said, I said, um, I said, Robert, thank you so much. He said, uh, I said, you've, you've made me feel so included as part of this process and I can't thank you enough. You know what I mean? Like this is, you built this, like you are the MCU, like, you know, it, it all started with Iron Man. Like this is, you built this stuff and like, you know, you could have looked sideways at me and I'd be gone and you've gone the opposite way. And you've, you've been incredibly gracious to me and I'll never be able to repay you. You know, thank mm. you. And he says to me, he's just like, he's just, again, he's like, Hey, you're doing a good job. Don't worry about it. You know, we're helping. He goes, but you know, I, he says, I'll tell you, he says, you know, when I, he says the first movie back, you know, when I got out of jail, he says, my very first movie back, I'm on the, the very first set that I did. And everyone's looking at me. Everyone's looking at me the entire shoot. Hmm. They're all staring at me. Why is the studio taking a chance on this guy? 
Why is the studio doing this? You know, they're all staring at me. And he goes, and I just, I swore to myself in that moment that I would never, ever make anyone on any set that I'm on feel unwelcome. Hmm. And, um, you know, and so, uh, and his producing partner was there with me um, as well. And he just said, it's true. You know what I mean? Like, if you're on one of Robert's sets, your family, you know, and, um, you know, and I saw that and to a person, like for the two days that I was there, everyone was listening. Is Robert great? Isn't Robert great? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's who he is. Right. And it's just like, so it's hard for me to separate, like, you know, I love Iron Man. I love Tony Stark. It's, you know, it's a fun character period, but it's impossible for me to separate because I, I have so much affection and love for Robert Downey Jr. Wow. that it's hard for me to separate that, you know, because I, when I see that character on screen, my heart fills with joy. Yeah. So that's, that's my nice. answer. That's nice. Well, listen, uh, Matthew, congratulations on, on everything. I always appreciate you making time for Ireland, me on the, on the radio. I'm glad I knew you back when, uh, and glad to call you a friend now. Thank, thanks a lot for doing this, man. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Anytime, if there's any other painful memories that I can unearth for you, <laughs> that'd be I'll, great. I'll dredge something up. Yeah. Listen, why don't you just come to my therapy sessions? Why don't we just roll tape on those? <laughs> we do that. You, know, we'll you do could do that. it. You could do uh, that. Do- like another documentary. Like what's his name is doing. He did that great <laughs> yeah, documentary. The, with the, the uh, Seth Rogen documentary. Seth, yeah. Not, yeah. Not yeah. Seth Ro- it's not Seth Rogen. It's um, what's uh, his Jonah name? Hill. Jonah Hill. Yeah, there Jonah you. Hill. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'll do. Well, well, um, you got it. You have to come back because there's so much that I'd love to talk to you about. So yeah, we'll no, definitely have I to feel have bad you back because I, I I know you were you wanted to ask me about a TV our TV writing question. So when oh, I feel no, like I derailed no, no. it for that, that's fine. It was great. It was yeah, great. We'll no, do we'll do, really we'll do we'll do that another time. I I thought Steve, I thought that Downey uh, answer and anecdote would be better than just who my favorite character was in the uh, MCU. So I, I I totally agree with you. It was it was much better. It was much better. Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. There you have it. Uh, Matthew Barry, now one of the stars of Sunday Night Football, the number one rated show on TV. He went from outsider to part of that Sunday crew to part of the MCU. It's it's an amazing story. He's a great guy. He has so many jobs. He's like, um, it's like that Saturday Night Live sketch with the Jamaicans. <laughs> yes, yes. So many jobs. He's got like 50 jobs. We have him on the radio and at the very end of it, we plug all of his stuff. And it, I swear it's as long as the interview was in the first place. He does so much stuff. Um, Sue, thank you very much. And we will see everybody next time. By the way, thank you very much, Matthew Berry. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. We appreciate you listening. We will see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Podcast.